0: Actually, this whole month seems like it kind of got compressed into about three days time and boom, here we are just making our way through. Anyway, thanks for joining me today. This program exists to help people and encourage people to think clearly and independently. That does not mean to parrot whatever I'm sharing with you, but rather to uh, examine some of the things that fall outside of the three by five index card of approved opinion. There's a lot of manipulation going on out there. There's a lot of obfuscation of what the truth is and just, you know, little things to divert us and keep us just off course by even a couple of degrees. Well, I'm here to encourage you, question everything. Don't take my word for it. Don't take the mainstream media, corporate media's word for it. Don't trust politicians when they tell you this is how it is. Think for yourself. And once you've uh, comfortably arrived at a place where you feel like, okay, I I have a good sense of where this is going or what this all means, then confidently move forward on your own course. I know we've been trained from a very early age not to do this, but I'm here to tell you it's okay. It's okay to question these things. Every person you know, including yourself, is slogging their way out of the swamp of misinformation. So be kind to the people who are behind you. Don't yell at them because they're not, uh, you know, caught up with you. And be thankful for the people who are ahead of you, who were kind enough to leave trail markers along the way, to uh, you know, show the way to higher ground. All right. Having said that, let's jump in. And as the new as the year draws to a close, it's it's tough to gauge how optimistic should we be for 2023. Because right now, things are looking pretty unhinged on a number of different fronts. I have an article here by uh, Mike Flannery. It's actually a prayer for the new year. And I thought I'd start out with this today just because it covers a lot of the really important concerns. Mike Flannery says, Season's greetings from the free state of Florida. Not only is it pleasant, sunny, and warm, but it's also showing the nation the way to return to normalcy. Last year, he says, was the year of the black swan, a metaphor used to describe our current state of political upheaval and civil unrest, facilitated by a pandemic, read that biological warfare, unleashed on the world by the Chinese communists. In the process, our American elite, the establishment, Our leadership, read ruling class, career politicians, the permanent bureaucracy, the mainstream media, big tech, public health, big pharma, corporate executives, even our educational institutions, pre-K through universities, were revealed by this catalyst to be grossly incompetent, void of critical thinking, and indeed corrupt. Now, he says, with this as a framework we as a nation began to realize that rampant corruption of our system has been enabled by a dearth of common-sense leadership over the past several decades. It's abetted by those elites who have benefited the most from political careerism, crony capitalism, the advance of technology and the information age, domestic economic and energy decisions, illegal immigration, and foreign policy and wars meant to secure our national security. And now it has become undeniably apparent that, That We have a de facto fourth branch of the government, comprising our intelligence organizations, the DOJ, FBI, CIA, DNI, NSA, and others, which have betrayed their oaths of office. This, coupled with censorship of information through psyops, active measures to influence election outcomes by social media, obliteration of our southern border, and untenable illegal immigration... Disgraceful abandonment of the homelessness, runaway criminality in all our cities, and the lack of trust in the integrity of our election system, as well as the abandonment of the middle class, has truncated our freedoms and brought us to the brink of extinction as a nation of moral values. Alas, he says, many thought there would be an overdue correction, but were severely and unbelievably disappointed. So here's something to ponder. Ever heard of the five laws of stupidity? It goes like this. One, everyone underestimates the number of stupid people in circulation. Two, stupidity is independent from any other characteristic of a person, highly educated or dropout, elite or middle class, rich or poor. Number three, a stupid person does harm to others, sometimes even himself. Number four, everyone underestimates the destructive power of stupid individuals. Number five, a stupid person is more dangerous than a bandit. So, people in a democracy can be intelligent, helpless, or stupid like a bandit. Speaking of democracy, a term thrown about by a lot of stupid people in lieu of representative republic, which is our form of government, another term is correct and more appropriate. Unfortunately, we have, in fact, a cacistocracy. Hard to pronounce at first try. He's right. It's defined as government by the least suitable or competent citizens of a state, the stupid bandits. Put another way, run by the worst, least qualified, most unscrupulous, or corrupt citizens. Does that fit our situation? John Adams, one of the founders, said our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. He also said facts are stubborn things, and whatever may be our wishes, our inclinations, or the dictates of our passions, they cannot alter the state of facts and evidence. Now, we as Americans are at a crossroad in our history, and how this will shake out is still to be revealed. Whatever happens to this great experiment of nationhood is in God's hands. Prayer is a powerful tool to overcome evil. Let us pray that God indeed will bless America with the will to resist the forces of evil that confront us and restore respect for life and religion in our culture. Our founders were indeed prescient in their establishment of a democratic representative republic. Ben Franklin, while the last members of the convention were signing the Constitution, looking toward the president's chair, to the rear of which happened to be a painting of the sun hanging on the wall, observed that artists had always found it difficult to differentiate between a rising sun or a setting sun. He said to those around, them, around him, rather, During our long deliberations, I often looked at the picture behind the president's chair without being able to tell if it was a rising or setting sun. Now, at length, I have the happiness to know that it is a rising and not a setting sun. Despite these unprecedented times and circumstances, we hope you and your family are personally well and have a Merry Christmas. We pray this coming year will be a healing one for America, America rather, and that patriotism and good fortune will prevail. Again, this is from Mike Flannery. It's called A Prayer for the New Year. And you you may... you know, disagree with him on some points. I, I think he does a pretty good job of summing up what we're up against. And I'll admit, it's pretty daunting. But I also think he's dead on when he talks about, you know, this really is in God's hands. And, and I'm, I'm not trying to turn this into a Sunday school sermon for you. I just, I would ask you to think back to the odds that were against the, uh, the founders, you know, at the time of this nation's founding. On paper, if you sat down and and wrote out, okay, how and why should we expect these ragtag colonists to be able to stand up to the greatest military power in the world at that time? It wouldn't have added up. There's no way. They can't do it. And yet they did. And I'm going to suggest the same dynamic that brought them victory, which could not have been possible, at least on paper. It didn't look like it was anything that was going to happen. It was their firm reliance on divine providence. But it's not just, you know, an appeal to, well, God is on our side, therefore we can do whatever we want. What caused them to stand up in the first place, what caused them to recognize that, look, what the king is doing to us is not acceptable. And we not only have a right, we have a duty to stand up and secure for ourselves and for our children the kind of governance that will protect our natural rights. What what drove that decision wasn't anger. It wasn't impetuousness, and I'm not going to do what you told me. It was moral clarity. And that's something that right now it's very difficult to find among you know most people in in the American public. And it's it's not because they're evil. It's not because they're stupid. It's not because you know they're they're bad. It's just that a lot of people have outsourced that that sense of right and wrong and deferred to authority. Well, someone, you know, if there was something weird going on, I'm sure the news would tell us about it or it would be on the news. Yeah, right. Nope. Moral clarity is something that has to come down to your ability to sort right from wrong. I think about the quote that's attributed to uh, Harriet Tubman in her time, you know, helping people find freedom from slavery on the Underground Railroad. She talked about how she freed hundreds of slaves, but she could have freed thousands if they only had realized that they were slaves. Now, we're talking real, legit, chattel slavery. They were somebody else's property, but there were many of them who still couldn't make the connection that uh, this is morally wrong or unacceptable. And I think mentally we have a lot of people in that same situation today. Yeah, well, things are a little bit tough, but, you know, that's the way it is. And besides, it's just easier to let somebody else assume the responsibility and make the decisions. And, you know, as long as I'm getting a steady paycheck and there's food in the fridge and something to watch on TV, eh, you know, life isn't that bad. On the other hand, those of us who've had a taste of freedom and who have the moral clarity to understand what the proper role of government is and what it isn't, we've got some work ahead of us. All I'm suggesting is, with that reliance on divine providence, I think we can get it done. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And a quick shout-out here to lifesavingfood.com as well as monticellocollege.org. I am so happy to have them as sponsors of this little program. Thankful for what they do to make it possible for me to speak the truth each day. And it's a, you know, this, this is something that uh, I realize not everybody is going to agree with me, and that's, that's fine. I just also understand that there are people out there for whom finding the truth is a priority. Even if it's truth that is sometimes, well, not sugar-coated, not easy to swallow it may even be like oh this is a hard truth i don't want to, i don't want to face it but we're better off when we do and it gives us options and above all it hopefully gives us courage to do the right thing even when everything seems to be you know arrayed against us so if you have the chance to do business with my sponsors i hope you'll do that let's jump into another story here you know you get you can get a very good sense of how self-sufficient you are Simply by taking the time to sit down and think about, what do I take for granted? Most of us don't do this until we don't have whatever it is that we're taking for granted. Uh, Case in point, uh, you know, if you've ever had the power go off for an extended period of time, how normal is it that when you walk into the room and it's like, oh, it's dark in here, and you reach over and you automatically flip the light switch, knowing full well the power is out and it's been out, But you reflexively do it. You take it for granted. Oh, wow, I caught myself flipping the switch here because I thought for sure that it was going to turn the light on. I mean, people learned this, you know, in the early days of the COVID pandemic. You know, if you saw people clearing off the store shelves, there were a lot of people who realized, oh, this is stuff we took for granted. I think toilet paper was probably a big one for a lot of people. Well, I've got an article here from Barrett Tillman, an essay on inventions taken for granted. And This is kind of a fun one, but it just, it'll, it'll make you stop and think about all the little things that we don't consider, because, uh, because we don't. Barrett Tillman says, around Y2K, the internet and media were full of everyone's list of most important inventions. And some of these were slam dunks, the wheel, gunpowder, the telegraph, radio, steam and internal combustion engines. Airplanes, rockets, nuclear power, etc. Near the top, often just below the wheel, was the printing press. And he says there's no argument there for all the obvious reasons, but what good was Herr Gutenberg's 15th century invention without paper? He says in a half dozen random lists, I found paper on all of them, but paper money rated high on two. Paper generically was not included in in two others. So he says, all right then, we have a printing press, we have paper, what's missing? You got it, ink. Writing and alphabets are strangely missing from some lists, but both existed long before paper. Consider Egyptian hieroglyphics and Sumerian cuneiform clay tablets. It took the combination of paper and ink to achieve written communications on a broad scale, even when many or most texts were laboriously copied by monks in candlelit monasteries. So he says, I nominate ink as a leading contender among inventions that we take for granted without a thought. And then he asked, did you ever wonder where ink comes from? Now, Barrett Tillman says, look, I'm a professional author with 40 plus books, and nearly 800 published articles. But the question never occurred to me until lately. So I did some Googling. According to the Smithsonian, ancient Egyptians used red and black ink once papyrus was available. Chinese and Indian civilizations also developed ink millennia ago. Formulas varied, as you would expect, involving iron, ochre, also uh, phosphate, animal hide glue, carbon black, and so on. The ink in your disposable ballpoint pen is composed of colorants, pigments or dyes, and binders or vehicles. Pigments cost more but are colorfast, whereas dye inks contain solvents for quick drying. Now, that probably is more than you want to know next time you write a check or even when you endorse one. Other taken for granted inventions, he says, i I consulted my email circle composed of really bright, accomplished professionals in various fields. They include include mostly retirees from the military, submarines to jets, law and law enforcement, journalism and academia, one each Rhodes Scholar. Uh, some remain active authors, but he said early responses included the button. Now think about that, which is the object of this exercise. Where would we be without buttons? Who first thought of sharpening a bone fragment, poking a hole in one end, and using it to draw a string through a piece of leather or wool? What was the string? Plant fibers? We'll we'll never know, but buttons are traced to the Indus Valley from at least 2,000 B.C. Button holes are also found in surviving Roman garments. So give a nod to 3,000 years of progress the next time you button your shirt or blouse. Then there are horses, Saddles should figure in history's significant inventions for obvious reasons. Enter the stirrup. He says, when my grandfather's black gelding spooked and started bucking, my six-year-old feet remained in the shortened stirrups, avoiding a long fall from Omak's quarterdeck. Otherwise, even as an adult, getting aboard and staying there was problematical. As an Oregon ranch kid, when I swung onto shorty saddle or roosters in Arizona, it was because of the stirrup. Now, he says, the Mongols probably didn't have many horse whisperers. The Khan's minions were not known for subtlety or kindness, but the steps reverberated with racing hoofbeats for centuries. Archaeology indicates that the Mongols likely perfected the metal stirrup around the 11th century, with advantages over the simple leather loop. Metal imparted rigidity, the better to stand while galloping and aiming the powerful recurve bow. Mounted knights could not joust or fight absent stiff stirrups and Europe's history might have been different otherwise. The foregoing examples remind us that much of what we take for granted is or has been essential to our civilization. In a period when supply chains lapse or back up with items such as basic, as basic rather as toilet paper, we might ponder everyday items such as paper, ink, and buttons, and what they mean to us. Again, this is Barrett Tillman, an article published on AmericanThinker.com, I share this with you just because I think it's kind of a powerful exercise to look around you. And every so often, just, you know, look for those little details. What are the things that I take for granted? You know, batteries are one of those things. Matches, you know, might be another one. I know it sounds like, are you just talking about uh, things for survival? Not necessarily. Reading glasses. Okay, there's one that... uh, You know, up until a few years ago, I really wouldn't have thought of that one. But uh, now, I'm the kind of guy, I like to have some reading glasses within reach just about everywhere I go. Why? Well, because I can't read crap (laughs) if I don't have something, because my eyes just don't focus up close. And reading's important. So maybe it uh, would be a fun exercise to sit down with your family and just kind of look over, what are the things that we take for granted? What are the inventions we take for granted? I guarantee if the power were to go out for an extended period of time, the dishwasher. That's thats one of the ones I would miss most of all. I mean, I grew up doing dishes by hand, and frankly, uh, I don't want to try and make it sound like, hey, he's trying to sell us on doing dishes by hand here, but some of my fondest memories were actually standing there at the sink doing dishes with my dad. Now, my dad's been gone for a long time, but, you know... As mundane as that may sound, you know, him washing the dishes and rinsing them while I'm drying them and putting them away. That was time to talk. That was time to, to, to be together. And, yeah, the work itself may not be, you know, the thing that people aspire to. I mean, I, I don't know very many people who really enjoy doing dishes. Maybe some do. But I guess what I'm saying is there's there's sometimes a silver lining there. And for us, that time where we would sit there and do dishes together was uh, time well spent. In fact, if I had known how short his remaining days on Earth were going to be, I would never have grumbled when he asked me to come and help. So, something to think about. I'm sure there's a lot of other stuff we take for granted, but if, uh, if we're in a kind of a mode of gratitude, which I think a lot of people are during you know this holiday season, this might be a time to think about some of those things, show appreciation for them. And if you... uh. Have a few that you think, you know, I really couldn't do without that. might not even be a bad idea to do some stocking up. All right, got to take a very quick break. We will be back. Just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, once again, thanks for joining us today. If you're a first-time listener, hopefully I haven't gone too far off into the weeds to where you're like, holy cow. Why didn't somebody warn me that this guy was going to be going off like this? I'll admit, I, I, fully, I fully understand that there are people who think, wow, this is, this is just more than I really can handle listening to. And that's okay. Not everybody is is looking for truth at the same level or with the same intensity, but for those who are, you are the reason why I do what I do. I know there are people who really want to know and they want good information or something that will provoke thought beyond, you know, rah, rah, this political party, rah, rah, that political party. I'm not big on politics. I spend a little time talking about it, but try to keep it as minimal as possible because I'm convinced the solutions that we are looking for for most of the problems that we face are solutions that are going to fall much closer to home and much closer to us as individuals than not. Besides, I kind of have this little secret hope that uh, enough people will catch on to that reality at some point to where we just pretty much make politicians obsolete. Thank you for what you're offering, but we don't need it. Go peddle that somewhere else. Wouldn't that feel good to tell him that? By the way, it's good to feel some uh, vindication For those of us who opposed all the various power grabs described as, or uh, uh, disguised rather, as pandemic responses. Got a great article here from Richard Kelly. This is from the Brownstone Institute. It was always about control. Richard Kelly says, early on in March of 2020, I was leery of the hysteria surrounding COVID and decided my course of action was to wait and see. Now, he says, at the time, I was under the impression that I was a freeborn citizen with a number of unalienable rights including sovereignty over my bodily choices. So when the talk started about new vaccines being imminent, I again decided I would wait and see whether the vaccines were all they were cracked up to be. This was then and is now an entirely reasonable position to take. Screeching from media and Twitter hounds notwithstanding, I didn't expect it would turn out to be more like wait and see how totally out of hand this will get. In other words, wait and see how the governments will forcibly close businesses. Wait and see how treatments will be suppressed. Wait and see how hysteria captured the media. Wait and see how healthy populations will be subject to house arrest. Wait and see how police will shoot protesters. Wait and see how a pregnant mother will be arrested for a Facebook post. Wait and see how medical services across state borders will be denied. Wait and see how wait and seers will be demonized. Wait and see how family and friends will betray their loved ones. Richard Kelly says, I've waited long enough and I've seen more than enough. Thankfully, the worst, the most violent excesses have abated for now. If you exclude the ongoing carnage of short and long term vaccine injury. But there are lingering abominations from the blitzkrieg of lockdowns and vaccine mandates. But generally, there's a sense that an uneasy peace or maybe a phony war has descended on us. Of course, there's still a serious amount of COVID pantomime going on. Exhibit A. A TV news report recently showed a road accident victim doing rehab with a mask on and then happily chatting without a mask to the reporter also without a mask. In other words, if if he was worried about COVID, he'd leave it on for the interview. Or if he wasn't worried, he wouldn't wear it while doing rehab. Seems you can have it both ways these days, provided you don't think about it too much. Exhibit B. Last year, cricket teams in the BBL were decimated if one of the players had a positive test and others were close contacts. Umpires refused to hold a bowler's cap or sunglasses for fear of the spicy cough. Last night, two players on one team played despite not only testing positive, but also feeling unwell. If there's no practical change when a player has COVID, why do we need to know about it? That's a good point. Answer, we don't. But it's become normalized to disclose players' private health statuses, just as it's normalized now to ask anyone any kind of detailed personal health question that satiates the questioner's ghoulish fetishes. So while player fitness has always been a matter of interest to sports fans, especially those who like a bet, illness used to be dealt with in a formulaic way, such as player X is not playing tonight due to illness. There's no need to know any further details. Exhibit C... The memorial concert for aboriginal singer Archie Roach included a pre-concert smoking ceremony in which footage aired for a news report that showed a woman dancing through the ceremonial smoke while wearing a mask. Now, this example is probably less deliberate pantomime and more genuine irrationality. Anyone donning a mask and expecting to keep a virus out but let smoke in has taken leave of their rationality. Ironically, in this case, the mask may actually do some good in preventing larger smoke particles from entering the lungs, what firefighters call smoke inhalation. Now, Richard Kelly says it's counterproductive to scoff at these insanities. Those who have not yet to come in their own time to see the inconsistencies are not suddenly going to see the light because of a witty remark. The most likely reaction is an equally irrational and possibly heated defense of the person or the rule. In valued relationships, the only sensible course is studied silence. Even a raised eyebrow in front of the TV can crank up the tension in the room a notch or two. But these annoyances over masks and COVID protocols that overused euphemism for voodoo stup- superstitions are yesterday's skirmishes in a war that has moved on to other theaters. The central battle is about freedom and autonomy. To the extent that the spoils of the mask and protocol incursions can be re against us, winning the freedom and autonomy battle will be that much harder. So he asks, how can we resist curbs on movement, having once complied with QR scanning for going to shops? Think it couldn't happen? Oxford City Council in the UK is moving ahead with a scheme to confine residents to one of six zones using electronic gates on roads and a limited number of trips across zones. He asks, how can we resist a forced medical treatment having once rolled over to experimental gene therapy? How can we fight against programmable digital currency when once we have accepted card-only cashiers and accommodated the idea of shopping for essential items only and allowing a cop to rummage around in our shopping trolley? The legislative bricks in the wall continue to be put in place with little, if any, scrutiny. Doctors are now unable to give opinions that depart from government health advice without risking deregistration. Pandemic laws born as bastard sons of parliament suspended under state of emergency powers are now legitimized as permanent statutes, requiring only a declaration to bring them all into force once again. Digital IDs are now compulsory for all company directors, including mums and dads who happen to be directors of their own superannuation funds. Ordinary citizens are surely next. So how is it that our lawmakers feel it appropriate to make these kinds of changes? No one asked for them. How is it they can ignore letters and petitions? Why do they partner with unelected globalists and make treaties we won't be allowed to vote on? How is that our civil rights, How is it that our civil rights institutions were so toothless? They didn't even whimper, let alone a growl. How is it that our professional bodies and business associations were silent? Only a few brave souls protested. How is it that our police forces humiliated themselves to the point where they were taping off children's playgrounds and fining elderly women for sitting on a park bench? We long ago gave up on the idea that mainstream media would hold authorities to account. In the end, he says, the explanations, whether we get them or not, whether they make sense or not, are beside the point. Nothing can change what happened. By some miracle, we might avert what they have planned, but it's going to be a hell of a fight. Richard Kelly says, once upon a time, we sweated on daily case numbers when the new cases per day were less than 10. Now we barely think of them, and they're in the thousands, if not tens of thousands. There's only one conclusion to be drawn. It was never about public health, and it still isn't. It was always about control. Now, this is Richard Kelly, as you may have picked up. He is uh, from Melbourne, Australia. Boy, they saw some of the worst of the lockdown policies And his concerns, I think, are well-founded because those policies can be re-implemented and likely will be re-implemented as soon as there's sufficient emergency, you know, to justify leveraging the people back into them. I think it's safe to say here in the States we probably have, you know, similar policies just waiting to come back, you know, into play, which leaves you and me with a little bit of a decision to make here actually I made the decision a long time ago and I'm not saying you have to decide the same way that I did but I was skeptical from the beginning as well and it wasn't because you know I'm just that smart and I could see it all coming you know what got me crosswise especially with the masking it was my conscience something in my conscience said this is not about protecting people's health this is about testing to see who will comply and who will not and it's not a matter of you know somebody's uh, somebody's got to be out there you know making radical statements or otherwise you know behaving as the radical by defying whatever the official policy is i think my, what my conscience was telling me was someone has to be willing to say no when we are being told or asked to do irrational things Now, if you were in that same position, you understand very well. That's not the easier path. The easier path is to shut up and go along and do it, and uh, it's not that big of a deal. Justify it however you have to. But I mean, people keeping you out of stores, people suspicious. I mean, going to church was dramatic simply because of masks. But I don't think my conscience was wrong. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde show. All right, welcome back to the show. We are fast closing in on Christmas. Oh man, I mean fast. Like there's going to be a sonic boom I think at some point. This is this is just intense. I'm thinking back to a couple of years ago. You know, and this was this was when everything was locked down and everybody had been isolated and boy, there was something that uh, just was weighing on my conscience so badly and that was My mom, who at the time was uh, 85 years old, all by herself and had been for many years, and I just could not bear the thought of her having to face another Christmas all by herself, with, uh, you know, especially with having been in isolation from everybody for the better part of that year for 2020. And so uh, my wife, who is a wonderful person, and is always uh, you know, good for, for doing something that's, that's helpful and uplifting, she agreed, hey, why don't we do this? And, and at the time, we were living in uh, northern Utah. We said, well, what if we were to uh, make a, you know, a trip? We'll just go ahead and drive up. It's only three, four hours. You know, We'll drive up. We stayed at my wife's parents' house, which was near by where my mom lived. But the idea was we will get up early on Christmas morning, bake some cinnamon rolls, and go take them to my mom and surprise her. And we did it. And it was, you know, the, the cool thing about it was um, because I had my phone, I could sit there and <clears throat> I could, I could uh, videotape, you know, what was going on. Actually, I guess I was on the phone with my mom. So it was probably my wife who was videotaping, but she, she, she filmed us sneaking up to my mom's house. I, I called as we quietly pulled up into her neighborhood and, you know, got her on the phone and, was just talking with her. Hey, how you doing? You know, how's your Christmas going? Oh, it's nice, you know, and just kept her on the phone while the whole family, you know, wife and kids and I quietly crept up to the door and, and started knocking. And my mom's saying, oh, I got somebody at the door. Hang on just a second. I'm like, okay, I'll just, I'll just stand by here while you answer the door. And she answers the door and la ha! there we are. It was fun. It, it really was fun. And, and I can't forget the joy on her face you know, to to see us show up, and you know it. You got to remember, two years ago, this is when people were being told very actively: do not go to your family members, limit your uh, limit your family gatherings, stay away from family members, mask up, don't do anything. You know, because the vaccines really weren't uh, widely in distribution at that time, and so there was a lot of fear about: oh, if if anybody goes to see grandma for Christmas, you know, you're just going to end up killing her. Well, I'm happy to report that was not what happened to us. And the shame that others were dishing out about, uh, well, you know, you can't do this. It's, it's just wrong, you know, to be out there, you know, visiting your families. I, I hearken back to what Paul Rosenberg pointed out earlier this week. All those warnings, all those restrictions, all those lockdowns, all those advisories. They were wrong. They didn't do a thing to stop the virus from spreading. Everybody got it anyway. Anyway. So I'm glad that we erred on the side of let's not leave a loved one sitting alone for another Christmas. Now, since then, we've actually moved to where we are close by, and it's it's no longer, you know, an issue of, oh, do we go visit? Do we not? I know there may be some people still arguing about this, but, uh, you know, it's it's going to be an interesting time, I think, for, for people this Christmas, when things are a little more relaxed, maybe a lot more relaxed, but those last couple of Christmases, wow. There was a lot of very unintentional drama and division that, that came up. And yes, we have that in, in my family, too. I, you know, I have siblings who, uh, you know, absolutely, well, the masks work and the vaccines work and COVID is real. And, you know, I, I, I get it. It's just I don't agree that uh, the, the lockdowns and all the official pronouncements from health officials, which were a departure for more than 100 years of virus management, I don't think they had any standing. I don't think they did any good. All they did was condition people to obey and to fear and wait for instructions that it turned out to be from people who were as full of it as a Christmas goose. All right, I'm on a bit of a rant here, so I'm going to just put the brakes on there. I want to share with you a couple quick Christmas stories. This is from Mark Oshinsky, A Tale of Two Christmases. And I thought this was really cool. He he talks about a Christmas party that he uh, he went to in which uh, someone was telling a Christmas story. Uh, It was a guy by the name of Paul. Paul had been the uh, retail store manager. Uh, I think he said he worked at uh, like a Toys R Us store in Mount Vernon, New York. Now, he says at the time in the early 80s, uh, Mount Vernon resembled rather some other old mid-sized East Coast cities, too small to have a national reputation for violent crime. But if you knew the New York City metro area, you knew that Mount Vernon bordered the Bronx and had far more than the national average of homicides. So Paul was telling about uh, how uh, capping a Christmas busy shopping, a busy Christmas shopping season with weeks of long days and night, he had to work all day on Christmas Eve. And business was brisk, and when night fell and the store closed at 6 p.m., Paul was tired. He was highly motivated to go home to be with his loved ones. Feeling the peace and joy that the frenzied shopping season was over, he traversed the sales floor and entered the store's storage area on his way to the loading dock adjoining the building's rear. Wished his co-workers a Merry Christmas, sent them home, and then had to make sure the store was properly locked before he left. While approaching the the loading dock's metal door, he heard someone thumping, It's other side. And thinking it might have been a straggling employee who'd been placing some trash in the dumpster, Paul opened the door. Mistake. A bundled-up urban male in his late 20s quickly stepped through the door and said, I need a bike. Now, Paul told him, I'm sorry, but we closed 10 minutes ago. I need to go home and be with my family. Undeterred, the trespasser reached into his jacket, pulled out a large, powerful handgun, and pointed it at Paul. Look, man, I need a bike. Paul was stunned. After quickly refocusing, he was eager to survive to share Christmas Eve dinner with his family and suddenly willing to bend some rules. Now, as Paul told his story, there may have been thousands in cash in the store's safe, and both he and the gunman knew it. But he asked the gunman, what kind of bike do you need? The gunman said, something for an eight-year-old boy. So Paul and the gunman walked through the store, quickly selected a bike, and hauled it back to the loading dock. As they reached the door, the gunman paused, turned to Paul, and said, How much does it cost? Dumbfounded by the question, Paul replied, uh, 90. Well, the gunman pulled out his wallet, reached into it, and handed 520s to Paul. The satisfied customer smiled and said, I didn't want to steal it. I just needed a bike. Merry Christmas. And then the ultimate last-minute shopper carried the bike into the cold and dark. Paul closed up and resolutely locked the door behind him. And to all, a good night. I know, that's kind of a weird Christmas story, but at the same time, it, it scratches an itch for me that, uh, wow, you know, I have tended to be kind of a procrastinator of a Christmas shopper. But I never once considered that, uh, oh, man, I may have to go finish my Christmas shopping at gunpoint tonight. <laughs> so the point here that uh, Mark Oshinsky is, is trying to make is, look, uh, a lot has changed over the last 33 months same as the two Christmases before, but worsened by wearying cumulative Corona mania. He says, "This uh, this season doesn't feel like one where I might share an improbable, though ultimately uplifting experience with a stranger resembling the interaction that you just heard about. He says, as I write this, in fact, it says it's harder than ever to convince myself that all people are brothers and sisters who ultimately share some basic perceptions and moral code. In fact, he says, while America's physical landscape looks about the same as it did three years ago, its social landscape has been laid to waste. He says, it feels like many of my countrymen and women aren't people of goodwill or good judgment. And he says, you know, there are people who hid behind their masks or hidden homes and those who wrecked so many lives and vilified the heretics who blasphemed the church of Corona mania by speaking against the impracticality and political and economic opportunism underlying COVID mitigation. Is as those folks haven't apologized for their angry, misinformed authoritarianism. Will, for example, those who disinvited their unvaxxed kin from the past two years' Christmas gatherings admit they were wrong? Or will the fanatical Fouchists pretend that they never did this? Those whose memories won't allow such outright denial may tell themselves that those whom they treated like latter-day lepers deserved punishment for their selfishness. But he says nothing could be further from the truth. In the real world, the skeptics sensibly rejected the hysteria and the phony statistics, propaganda, and dogma, falsely marketed as the science. None of the interventions worked. Instead, as we skeptics predicted, mitigation has caused deep, lasting harm. So he says, here's his advice. Try to compartmentalize and be happy for the next few days. Return to the place of your birth, gaze at the lights in the darkness, listen to joyful music, pray for long-overdue revelations of truth, and give thanks for those who had enough discernment to fear not. By the way, he also advises, go easy on the cookies. As do the shots, sugar compromises immune function, and weight is easier to gain than it is to lose. I know, that's kind of an interesting twist, but... I really like his take on this. By the way, I'm including a link in my show notes. Check them out. They're at thebryanhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.